Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the wonderful home, allegedly in Santa Monica, but I keep thinking it must be the Pacific Palisades. But it is Santa Monica. Right on the cusp. Right on the cusp of Cecilia Obeyar and George Lewis. How are you both? Fine. Fine. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here. I've got some wonderful-looking plates and food in front of me. And I really wanted to to come and, and talk about uh, what you're up to now. So, George, tell me, because certainly in the United States, the whole world's aware, as it were, that you've recently retired from NBC, but this is a kind of Frank Sinatra retirement, I hope. Right. I, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't completely ruled out work again. <laughs> I'm doing some freelance projects, uh, a, a little bit of writing and blogging right now, and I'm I plan to go back to part-time work at NBC at the end of July. They have this kind of six-month moratorium on retirees. I can't go back and do any work for them until six months oh, has passed. And I, I keep asking people, why do they have that rule? And nobody can explain it to me. <laughs> Is it a sort of revolving door thing? To Personnel doesn't want to pay money to somebody that would might be more on a freelance hourly basis than they were paying them? As full-timers. I, I, yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, um, I never have gotten a straight explanation for that. Cecilia retired from NBC a few years ago. and Did you ever get an explanation for why you couldn't work for six months? No. <laughs> I think there's some federal law. Really? Well, maybe it's just one of these things that's local and lost in the mists of time. That, in fact, no one in the personnel department of NBC has any clue why this should be no. the case. I guess we have to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, George, that uh, you recently published in Sokalo, which is a very good online magazine and also talks promoter that we have here. Right. Um, and that was a very enjoyable piece, or enjoyable might be the wrong word, a moving piece, I would say, about some of your experiences as a war correspondent. What else are you looking at? at doing or what are, uh, at writing before you go at least partially back into the fold? No, I don't know. Um, some people have su- suggested that I expand that piece and do a book, a memoir. But, um, one of the things I think is that the, the memoirs of uh, correspondence are, are a dime a dozen, <laughs> and everybody seems to be doing it. I would like Cecilia to write her memoir because I, I think she is a fascinating character, having been born in the Galapagos Islands and, uh, and then uh, came to this country and, and worked as a journalist. And she has a, a deep and abiding concern about the place she came from and, and, and its unique value in the, in the world. So maybe I'll ghost her uh, mm. memoir. No, 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 no. Edit it. I'll write it. <laughs> You're going to write it. Okay. How about you write George's memoir? <laughs> he writes mine. He writes yours, and then each of you gets the chance to edit you know, their own memoir story. Right. You know? Well, that, that's intriguing. We'll see. But uh, the other thing that I'm very concerned about is the fact that uh, in this country, um, journalism is becoming less and less diverse because um, I started working in television in 1971. Mm -hmm. And from the beginning, uh, the few of us who worked in in the media, in the news media, 
started to advocate for more diversity because we felt that in order to uh, practice good journalism, uh, the newspapers, the television stations, the radio stations had to be able to report on all the communities. And as this country becomes more diverse, the news media is becoming less diverse. And I think that's to the detriment of the public. So I feel a little bit like Sisyphus because, uh, <laughs> you know, like we pull that, we push that rock up and it's now down again. And uh, so I'm, I'm a member of an organization called um, Unity Journalists of Color. I'm a board member. And that's what we do. We advocate for more diversity. And, and we're going to have a big convention in Las Vegas from August 1st to the 4th. Uh, and we will have um, workshops, panels, a gigantic career uh, fair. So everybody's welcome to come. That's fantastic. Now, tell me why you think that the stone started coming back down the mountain. It may have had to do with the fact that um, before the 70s, there were very few of us in the media. So really, we, we were the last hired. And as, uh, <laughs> as the technology changed the delivery means of television, as the economic... Uh, crash uh, had a strong impact yeah. on, on, the, on the newspapers and, and television and radio. Uh, as people are trying to figure out a new business model for this new online media, uh, many people were let go. and uh, Last in, first out. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Last hired, first fired. Yeah. Right. So that's a big part of it. And of course, a lot of the corporations, and I'm not asking you guys to comment on General Electric, which still owns 49% of NBC, but owned a lot of it for a while. A lot of the corporations that came to own news organizations were not traditional news entities. Right. They were companies that regarded these things, it seems, as profit centers. And so if profit wasn't being maintained, resources were taken away. So to me as an outsider, one of the issues is that when you diversify ownership of the media outside the media, You have to excuse the garbage truck sure. going on <laughs> Yeah, we forgot, Tuesday morning, <laughs> garbage morning. <laughs> Sometimes when you diversify ownership beyond companies that have particular, almost pastoral, familial interests in the media, you actually diminish the diversity of the people in the organizations because uh, all they're interested in is their bottom line, you know, quarterly uh, return on investment. And, yeah, and exactly. I think, I, I think uh, um, there was an old paradigm under which radio and TV operated in this country in, in that the Communications Act said if you have a broadcast license, you have to serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And... <clears throat> In the 70s, when Cecilia was hired, the Federal Communications Commission said, you have to make your news staffs more diverse. You have to, you have, to have diversity in hiring in your, in your stations if you want to continue to hold a broadcast license. Well, those old regulations kind of went away. And uh, uh, so you know, there's no diversity requirement now. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though it's probably in the, those companies' best 
self-interest to, to have more diversity. They, uh, they don't see that as one of their priorities as they pursue the bottom line. One of the stories I've been told by a couple of people not working at the national level, as you guys were, and international level, but more at the local level, is that you might turn on your television in Southern California, where we all live, watch the morning news, and you see an, uh, within the group that is presenting the news from the center, central desk, a Latino or a Latina, a black man or a black woman, an older white guy and a blonde girl wearing underwear. Mm -hmm. Right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and in a sense, you could say this is diverse because it is meant to appeal to the viewership. But once you get behind the camera, there isn't that diversity at all. But at least in the people, with the people I've spoken to, right. the folks who are producing, who are directing the news and so on, uh, tend to be... Anglo-Saxon, white, European descent, whatever. And the diversity is only there for the viewers to see. It's not there in terms of actually creating the news. I think if you looked at the, t the total staffing, uh, the people in front of the camera and behind the camera, um, the, the numbers in terms of diversity are pretty miserable. Um, it doesn't reflect the, the outside society you know, mm -hmm. as we become... Uh, more and more, you know, more and more persons of color are uh, occupying a bigger percentage of the population. Newsrooms are still pretty much white Anglo-Saxon male. So do you think this is, Cecilia, in part, not only because of the loss of those FCC regulations, Federal Communications Commission regulations, um, but is also about prejudice? Does that play a part, the desire to recreate workspaces that look like you and sound like you rather than, you know, become... Uh, more of a rainbow, let's say? Well, I, I don't know that. Um, Doesn't it have to do with comfort zones? It, it yeah. has to yeah. do you with know, You're comfort comfortable zones. with your own kind? Yes, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Uh, also, the, I mean, there are more people in, in, in all jobs. I mean, technicians, producers, reporters, etc. Mm. But... The people at the very top yeah. are not, and you're right. Most of them are uh, Anglo-Saxon males. Yeah. And um, I've got to hang on to every bit of privilege I can get, Cecilia. <laughs> Just you're, my people. I, I think you're that, surrounded by white Anglo-Saxon males, Cecilia. <laughs> Surrender. <laughs> Never mind demographics in the future. Will take care of that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> We're an endangered species, George. Mm -hmm. Now, um, these are the two best Anglo-Saxon men I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but, uh, I mean, it, it, for me, as um, an immigrant from Ecuador here, uh, it, it was great to, to work in television. But the best moment for me was when I was hired as a producer for NBC News. Mm -hmm. and, and the first thing that they asked me was, would you like to go to Mexico and be the bureau chief? And, and you know, what a wonderful thing to do. Right. Uh, you know, I could bring together the, the two languages that I know, the two cultures that I know, um, try to explain for an American audience what is happening in, in this part of the hemisphere that in the 1980s was being covered more than it is now. 
And you got there, you, you were there during some momentous events. Well, one of the reasons that it was covered is because there were all these proxy wars. You know, it, the Cold War was going on, and in El Salvador you had uh, leftist guerrillas fighting a, a right-wing government that was supported by the United States. In Nicaragua you had a left-wing government that was supported by Cuba and the Soviet Union fighting against guerrillas, the Contras, that were supported by the United States. So that created a lot of interest yeah. in the United States right. for those right. kinds of stories. So yes, I, I had um, to cover many of those stories. And did you do that? So there was a bureau in Mexico for NBC that you ran. You had responsibility for most of the Americas? For the region, yeah, the region. which is humongous. So it could be the end of a dictatorship in Brazil, for example? Yeah. Was that newsworthy? Um, yeah. We, we, it was not as newsworthy as what was happening in Central America. Right. But during the 80s, we did manage to go to Argentina because that was the end of that dictatorship after they lost the war. Uh, the Malvinas war. Yeah. <laughs> Falklands. You say Malvinas, I say <laughs> Falklands. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah. You're well, Fred and Ginger here. Right. <laughs> yeah, and we, we also went to Chile because um, starting in 83, there were very big pro-democracy protests, even mm. though you know, the, the, the government was still in the hands of Pinochet. And, uh, and in addition to that, we covered uh, Cuba. And we, we were there, I remember, for the 30th anniversary of the revolution in 1983. And, um, and then in 88, um, I went uh, as part of a large group that went with Maria Shriver to do an interview with Fidel Castro. Because she was an NBC journalist at that time. Was yes, she? Yeah, she was, yes, she was. Yes, she was. And... Um, that was an interesting time. How did Maria and Fidel get on? Did they share a cigar or had he already quit by then? <laughs> he, he was most welcoming uh, because he was very well aware that Maria is a niece of uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, so, as a matter of fact, there were many people who had been uh, requesting an interview with him, including Dan Rather for, from CBS and many other people, and, uh, but he granted it to Maria. And he, and he was the most wonderful host at the beginning. He uh, took Maria and us. The, we had three crews following this event, and he had his own crew. He always has his own crew. And he took us, you know, I'll show you my Havana. So we had this convoy of jeeps, and we were, we were going around Havana and looking at hospitals and daycare centers and uh, senior citizen centers, etc. He didn't take you to the Tropicana? No, we went there on our own. Bill's <laughs> <laughs> night out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but uh, the one thing that I observed was that Fidel was wearing his... Uh, olive green, you know, fatigues, and, but every time he got out of his Jeep, one of his assistants w would kneel and make sure that the top of his pants covered the top of his boots, you know, 
simple yeah. service, but yeah. an you important know, one for, so in, in a Marxist regime. Yeah, you know, mm. power has privileges, right? <laughs> it certainly does. Sounds like Sir Walter Rawley and the Queen didn't work too well for Sir Walter. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the, and then the interview itself began like at 10 p.m. Right, he's a late night person, isn't he? That's yeah, in the Palacio de la Revolución, and, right, right. and it lasted like three hours. <laughs> and, and Maria did a really good job, you know. She asked him all the relevant questions, and one important question at the time was whether there was drug trafficking going through Cuba with the permission of the Cuban government. And of course, he denied it right. very strongly. And when the interview ended, he said, no, let's go have a little snack. And we walked into this other room, and there was the most amazing banquet laid out there. There was a whole roasted piglet, lobster, uh, all sorts of salads and you know wonderful food something that the ordinary Cuban could not even dream about and there were chefs with white talks serving us the dessert was a, 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 a baked Alaska flambe of course and there were all kinds of wines and it was and at the end we all got a Coiba cigar <laughs> yeah it was quite interesting Fortunately, it didn't have a happy ending because... You got in trouble with Fidel. We got in trouble because this was on a Wednesday. And on, on the Thursday mm -hmm. in Miami, the U.S. government uh, filed charges against a Cuban-American accusing him of trafficking drugs through Cuba. So... The very thing that Castro had denied. Denied in, in his interview. So... Uh, the interview with Maria was going to air on Sunday, in, in the Sunday Today program, but Nightly News then asked for a story, yeah. you know, which included the fact that this Cuban-American had been arrested, and they, they used a soundbite from Castro saying, no, 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 I, you know, it's not happening you know, with my permission through Cuba. Well, but that upset him a lot. He, he didn't like it. That, he said, what about the lobster? What about the coiba? <laughs> what are you doing to me, NBC? Yeah. Well, what he did was that he aired the three hours of the interview that his crew had shot uh, alongside our crew, and he aired it on Cuban television. But, you know, in a way, that backfired. I think he wanted to show the whole interview that it was not just about the, the drug trafficking, which he had denied. Uh, but then they showed three hours of the interview with Maria Schreiber, and then people start saying, why is she asking him those tough questions? Yeah. Because they were not used to seeing Cuban journalists ever asking him tough questions. And then a friend of mine, who, who is a Cuban journalist, tells me that the government started the, um, spilling these rumors Oh, Fidel let him, let her ask her those questions because, you know, the two of them are having a little thing, a little <laughs> romantic thing, you know, a total fabrication. But in Cuba, people uh, thrive on gossip sure. because there's such little information. So, you know, it's like, so, and then they also made jokes, you know, because at one point Maria did ask him, you know, why don't you allow Cubans to travel freely, you know, 
they want to travel out of the island. It's very difficult for people to leave, or was in those years. So in the joke, they, they, they said, Maria asked him, why don't you let people travel? And, she, and he said to her, you wise little thing, you want to stay here in this island? All, you know, just the two of us. <laughs> all alone. <laughs> all alone. You know, so, so that was it. And it didn't even end there because when we were leaving Cuba, the, the show aired on Sunday, it was okay. But the NBC version. The NBC, on, yeah, on the, the NBC version. Yeah, his show yeah. ended uh, air on Saturday, ours yeah. air on Sunday morning. And we go to the airport and uh, they called Maria and they called me into another room. And in walks Fidel. At the airport? At the airport, as we were getting ready to go. And then he gave us a dressing down. <laughs> with all those things, you know, I was, you know, so hospital to you. I gave you the interview. I gave you this and that. And, you know, how could you put me next to that drug trafficker and blah, blah, blah. And wasn't he wagging his finger right in your nose? Oh, yeah. And he has really long nails. Really long nails. Howard you know? Hughes figure. Yeah. <laughs> and I was supposed to be the inter- he has very good interpreters but for some reason they were not there that morning so you were doing the interpreting I'm doing the interpreting so he's in my face with his long fingernails you know pointing oh. at me and saying you know, why do you do this you know and I'm translating this for Maria you know who's standing there with her mouth open and then finally oh and we're trying to explain you know it's the news blah 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 and, and then <coughs> behind him his people are saying signaling that I should just, you know, listen. Right, right. <laughs> and then eventually he calmed down. It's like he remembered that Maria was the niece of Kennedy. And, and he signed. We had these posters that NBC had printed. He signed the posters. <laughs> uh, uh, Maria said, can you sign these posters? And he signed them. And then, and then he kissed us goodbye. And he produced this humidor full of fantastic Coiba cigars for Arnold. And Maria said, I cannot take that, you know, in American customs, I cannot do that. And I said, don't worry, I'll, I'll send them through our uh, special interest section in, in Washington. But I, I never found out if, if whether they arrived or not. Whether they arrived or not, but that was... That was our departure. Arnold being Arnold Schwarzenegger, just in case there are people outside the U.S. listening who aren't aware that he was married in those days to Maria Shriver. They still are. Well, but not together. Oh, yeah. Well, now she's, she can truly be with Fidel, a secret love she's been harboring <laughs> for a quarter of a century, I've just discovered. Now the story can be told, exclusive to iTunes. <laughs> No. But in any event, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It was all fascinating. It was all part of their program. Wait till TMZ.com picks up yeah, on that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Then we'll all know it's really true. <laughs> and um, I guess, so, so Mexico was the center from which a lot of these stories were reported. No. Or no? No, no. I was in Mexico, and uh, because we were spending so much time in Central America, Thank you. it was actually more difficult to leave Mexico because we had to do a lot of paperwork. We were foreign correspondents based in Mexico, but yeah. we had to go to the foreign minister and get yeah, like an exit visa. And uh, so they moved me to Miami. 
it was easier to go. Because Central go. America was so important, it was easier yeah. to get there. And it was a lot easier to come. Yeah, I spent most of the 80s in, in, yeah. in Central America. Now, but you were reporting, uh, I, I'd just love to do one more Mexico story if I could, or ask you one more Mexico story if I could. You were reporting on in, uh, from Mexico or in Mexico at the time of the terrible 1985 earthquake. I was in I Miami. But I was in Miami, but they, uh, you know, we learned that, that a terrible earthquake had happened, and, right. and 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 I I got this call, and they said go to the airport. We have a Learjet waiting, and I remember I was dressed, ready to go to the office, and I was wearing white sandals, and I just <laughs> pick a bag and I run to the airport, and we went, and we didn't even know if the airport in Mexico City was open. Mm-hmm. So we, first we landed in Merida, then we found out that the airport in Mexico City was open, and, and we went over there and we landed there. And pretty soon there were all these jets coming in, the, you know, from Burbank. Well, they yeah, they, they did a full court press. They from, sent from. some. They sent a contingent from Miami. They sent some of us from LA. They sent another group from Texas. Uh, back in those days, the networks would. Throw, throw a lot of money at big stories. At one point, we had eight Learjets on the ground at, at the Mexico City airport, and they sent a C-130 with a satellite truck, and they just drove the truck off and so we could uh, <laughs> broadcast from Mexico. Those were the days. Right. And, 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 you know, and we landed there, and we immediately rushed over to, to cover the, the situation, and here I am walking through the rubble in my white sandals. <laughs> Mm. Wow, what a contrast. So you got there and did you go, were you involved in that too? Did you go to uh, Mexico from LA? The day of the earthquake, I had to be the best man at a friend's wedding. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I voiced the initial report on the earthquake from Los Angeles and then (laughs) flew down to San Diego to be in the wedding and then flew to Mexico City. Wow. And in terms of the, you know, eight Lich, <laughs> loving the story. As you can imagine, as an academic, I am routinely getting those calls about the Learjet being on the tarmac. Right. But because I'm a guy, I'm normally not wearing white sandals. Yes. Any other than that, the difference between us is negligible. I'll have to tell you about the time I chartered an airliner. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> but before we get to that, uh, what was the division of labor that would happen? How did you manage telling a a very complex, multivalent, polyvalent story like an earthquake, when you've got people coming from different parts of the country with different linguistic competences, right. with different angles, how, how, could that, how, would that, how did that work? Well, normally on, a big, not work? normally on a big story, they would assign one producer uh-huh. uh, to be the coordinating producer. And I think, were you the coordinating producer? No, Maury Moore was. Okay, there was another woman who was bilingual uh-huh. who was the coordinating producer who would kind of parcel out the work and make sure that uh, everybody was going in the right direction. There was um, a, tele- a local television station in Mexico and uh, we secured a space there for, yeah. for us, for, yeah. for all of our, you know, they gave us a big room there. Right. So, and it also had the added advantage that we could um, share their their coverage, their, their local coverage. Yeah. They share it with us. So, excuse me. <laughs> The, the, the problem just a statement to take another Learjet call from me. Yeah, right. 
come back, come back. Six yeah, come months back. is definitely passed. Well, the, the, the part of the problem in Mexico was what normally we would transmit our TV stories out of the central communications tower, which was run by the phone company, and that you know that had microwave links to the satellite ground stations, and that's where we would we would transmit normally. But after the earthquake. Uh, the central communications tower was leaning farther over than the Tower of Pisa in Italy <laughs> and was considered unsafe to occupy. So, hence the, the, the uh, C-130 with the satellite truck, uh, so that we had some way of getting our, our, our images out of, uh, out of Mexico. No satellite phones in those days. Uh, oh, no. no, that was uh, uh, very. We actually did have satellite phones, but they were huge, mm. cumbersome things that uh, that had, you know, took up four suitcases worth of electronics and this huge antenna that you had to unfurl. Could, could they transmit images? No, no, they were right. only capable of transmitting voice. They were no. <laughs> only capable of doing voice. Well, so, I remember we we initially sent back some of the stories on. On some of the returning Learjets. Right. No. Oh, yeah. They actually would uh, as videotape. Would send the videotape back to the yeah. back to Texas or wherever the nearest uh, transmission point was. I think it was a it was about a, an hour and a half flight from uh, Mexico City to Houston. Yeah. This is presumably taking you back to days in Vietnam when I presume you were shooting on film. Right. And then sending to I don't know Hong it, Kong or Thailand for developing. Right. Or? Yeah. The, the if if it was a Hot story that needed to be on the air that same day. Uh, we would we would send the film to Bangkok or Hong Kong, usually Hong Kong, and um, they would cut it there and tra and transmit it uh, out of Hong Kong. Uh, we we had the advantage that we were uh, twelve hours difference from New York, so we could put the the film on the last plane out of Saigon at say five in the evening, and it was five a.m. in New York, and they would have all day to then get the film process and edit. Yeah, right. So just finishing off the Mexico story, just to give a little bit of flavor to this, um, Cecilia, what was your assignment in the wake of the earthquake? What, we, what stories were you producing? Well, um, I remember that uh, they discovered that um, in the hospital, these this babies these newborn babies had survived. Uh, they kind of had gone like into a stage of hibernation. So this was like a week after the earthquake and these babies were alive. And the building was completely collapsed, right? Yeah, the building was a mess. You know, the, the, wow. the rescuers breaking through the rubble entered this neonatal unit and there are all these babies in their cribs and they're alive. It was an amazing story. Wow. Uh, I mean, I did all sorts of things, you know, from keeping track of what the local television was covering so that we could share, uh, to translating, to doing interviews. Uh, reporters, um, producers act many times as reporters, you know, because sure. the correspondence cannot be everywhere. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it was... Uh, is a blur now, but we were sure. doing, uh, and we were there, we were not there when the first earthquake happened, but we arrived that same day, and they put us in a hotel, in a tower hotel in La Zona Rosa, mm -hmm. and then the, the second day, there was this very strong aftershock, I think it's stronger than the original earthquake, 
No. <laughs> no? No, not Almost. <laughs> Almost as strong. As Almost as strong, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the building was in really bad shape, this hotel where we were staying. I was on the street because we had been out shooting, doing interviews. And all of a sudden, the light poles are moving, the trees are moving, the buildings are moving, people are pouring out of buildings, <laughs> screaming. So we get out of the car, we take some video of that. And by the time we get to the hotel, all the guests in the hotel, all the NBC people are on the street. Uh, and I was, my room was on the 11th floor. And they said, okay, go get your things because we're moving to the Camino Real, which is it's only two or three stories high. And built like a pyramid so it yeah. doesn't fall over. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, we, so I had to walk up 11 floors and the building apparently was built as two towers that were together, but they had separated. So it was like half a meter of separation between the two towers now. <laughs> so I walked to the 11 room, I grabbed my bag, and then I dragged it down the stairs again. And we all moved to the Camino Real. Wow. It, was, it was a very uh, emotional, and uh, you really felt for people. I remember... Placido Domingo, who grew up in Mexico. Did uh, he? I didn't know. Yeah, he, his family is from Spain, but uh, yeah. they came to, to... There were many Spaniards who left uh, Spain after the, the Civil War. 60,000. Yeah, so he, his family, I don't know, cousins, uncles, lived in Tlatelolco, mm -hmm. in those buildings there. And uh, he was there every day uh, as, they, as they, they were digging around. To, to find if there were any survivors. Right. And I think because of his prominence, yeah. you know, long after they gave up in all the buildings, they kept digging in that building. And I remember Mrs. Reagan came over to visit Mexico and she made it a point of going there and saying hello to, to Placido Domingo. So he, he was a good uh, cousin or nephew of those people trying yeah. to find them. Wow. Cecilia and I also ended up chasing a hoax down there. There, there what was, was that? There was a story that near the, the Zocalo, the central square, there was a boy trapped in the rubble of a building, and his nickname was Monchito, little monkey. And, and they no, had a, no monkey. It's, it's a diminutive of Ramon. Ramon, okay. Ramoncito, Monchito. Monchito, okay. Sorry. See, that's why I need her. <laughs> I, I, I know there are some other reasons as well. But, yeah. <laughs> so... There were all these crews from Argentina, from Mexico, from other countries, digging in the rubble and, and listening for signals. And they swore they heard, when they were tapping on the rubble, they, they heard the kid tapping back. And they were yelling out, Monchito, Monchito. Kid, there was never any kid in that rubble. Mm. It, was, it, was a, it was a complete fabrication. I, I think it was a wishful thinking on the part of the rescuers that they, they would be able to pull one more kid out of the rubble after after the the miracle at the hospital yeah but and and what happened was that abc cbs and nbc were all out there they all had crews out there mm. cnn and you know we didn't think there was anybody there the dade county the the firefighters came and, and they they came out and they say you know the, the building had collapsed there had been a fire and it was flooded it, it, it was flooded it was impossible that anybody was there and, uh, and uh, but we didn't want to pull out because we didn't want uh, MB, uh, CBS or ABC to get 
the scoop if something really happened. So we were staking it out 24 hours a day. For several days. For several days. And it, by then we were so exhausted, yeah. you yeah. know, from all the... And, and, and they, oh, and it was so sad because one of the surviving babies died. Mm. And the, and the, and because I had been following the story, the parents asked me to go to the funeral. So my crew and I go to the funeral of this baby. Yeah. And then they asked me to speak <laughs> at the funeral because we had given them some help, you know. I guess I shouldn't say that. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, here you have this really poor family, you know, yeah. that... that and, uh, we should explain that there are rules against paying people to participate in news stories, but uh, certain producers have always been known as a soft touch. Well, <laughs> I didn't give them money. I gave them, you know, clothing and things. You know, food. Yeah. I mean, they, they were on the street. It was yeah. really sad. So, uh, gosh, they asked me to speak at this funeral. That was so difficult. <laughs> All I could do was cry, you know, it was so hard. And these people were so poor. And, uh, you know, this baby had survived. And then he died, you know, it was sad. Incredibly moving story. Yeah. Incredibly moving story. I think you won some sort of award for that story, didn't you? I, I don't know. No, that was another story that we did with um, NBC had a children's program. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I found a, a young, two young girls who um, survived the earthquake, but their mother and their little brother died. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we sort of followed them around. One of the girls was really hurt, and she was in, in the hospital. The other girl was physically okay. And they, fortunately, they had a grandmother whose house had not collapsed, so, so they were staying there. But... A couple of years later, the, uh, I helped the girl who had a bad leg come to Miami for treatment. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they could help her really. Yeah. You know, they, they did the best they could. So it was, I mean, some of these stories, you know, stay with you. They bring back a lot of memories just yeah. telling yeah. them, I'm sure, right. the suffering that you see. Yeah, yeah. no, no. The, I think one of the reasons that I applied for the Neiman Fellowship was because I, I got to the point where I just kind of needed some time out. Time out. Yeah. This Neiman Fellowship is at Harvard University. There are only a few given to people. There are four very distinguished journalists. And, you know, the fact that Cecilia held one of these is a sign of her eminence. But also I think that is part of the idea, isn't it, that people might take some time away from... Not just the daily grind, but the shock effect of the highs and lows emotionally. I imagine of the work that you yeah. both have done. Right. Yeah. No, it was it was a very healing period. <coughs> mm -hmm. You know, the, the, to have it, uh, this opportunity to explore the intellectual world and learn new things and and make some really good new friends. And contribute a lot, I'm sure. It was wonderful. And George, can I, uh, turning back to you for a moment, if I could, sure. so that Cecilia can finish the fantastic salad that you and I have been <laughs> scoffing down while mm -hmm. I've been interrogating her. Um, I had two questions I wanted to ask. The first was uh, about this question of um, 
chartering the airliner. Oh, that was... I was in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, the day that Pope John Paul II was shot. And um, I, we were following the American Secretary of Defense around, and I come back to the TV station where we were going to send our story, and I, I was about to tell New York. I didn't think it was a very exciting story. And I saw the people in the TV station huddled around one of the, one of the monitors, and it was the news from Rome that the Pope had been shot. And I called up New York immediately, and I said, I, I guess um, our story on the Secretary of Defense isn't going to air tonight, is it? <laughs> yeah. And um, they said to me, not only are you out of the show, you're out of Lisbon, and we want you and your crew and everybody to go to Rome as, as quickly as possible. You charter a plane if you need to. So I said, fine. And we started checking around to see what was available for charter. Well, it turns out that the only company in Portugal in those days that was authorized to charter aircraft was the government-run airline, TAP. And <laughs> so we called them and said, what's the smallest plane we can, uh, we can charter to run? Because how many of you were there? Five or six? There were five or six. Yeah. And uh, they said, uh, the smallest plane we have available for, for charter is a 727. <laughs> Which would have had room for all your worldly possessions, right, including exactly. real estate. Exactly. So we said, uh, how much will it cost to charter that 727 from Lisbon to Rome? And they said, $18,000. We said... And this is 30 years ago. This is 1981, I think. We so said, fine. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll uh, put it on our air travel cards. Oh, no, sir. You, you have to have cash. Whoops. So... We said, okay, fine. Uh, assuming we get $18,000 in cash, you'll be able to charter us the 727. Uh, well, sir, we have the aircraft available, but we don't have a crew that's checked out in the 727. We do, however, have... We've got a, a guy who once flew a Cessna. We, <laughs> we've got a crew that's checked out in a 707, and we can charter to you that for $22,000. So I said, hold on a second. I had one of my colleagues call our office in London and ask, suppose we need to get our hands on 22,000 US dollars in Lisbon in a hurry. How do we do that? And they said, oh, we got a guy. His name is Juan. They're all named Juan. And he'll meet you at the airport. So we go to the airport and we. Joao was part of a sleeper cell that had been there during the dictatorship. <laughs> well, this guy with slick black hair <laughs> and a huge satchel <laughs> shows up at the airport. And I say to my producer, I think we're in bed with the mob. <laughs> and we probably were. <laughs> so we... We, we fork over the, the $22,000 the guy has in the satchel, and, and we all get on board this 707 to go to Rome to cover the shooting of the Pope. And I think by now, uh, ABC had joined our charter, so we were a, a total of about eight passengers on this plane that seats 145 people. <laughs> but it had a full complement, all of, all of the flight attendants and the purser and everything. So we get airborne out of Lisbon, and they start wheeling the drink tray around. And they come up to my cameraman, and uh, he says, I'll have a gin and tonic. They say, fine, sir, that'll be $2.50. <laughs> and he goes bonkers. 
Right. He says, this is a charter. What are you talking about? And I called the purser over and I said, you know, we did pay $22,000 to charter this airplane. Don't you think you could throw in the drinks? He said, well, sir, you didn't order the charter with the open bar. Who and did he win? Oh, I I I think they won because you know it's a government airline. They were going by the bureaucratic procedure. So some some bean counter in New York heard this story and thought it was hilarious. Called up Tap and said, "Next time we charter one of your seven oh sevens for twenty two thousand dollars, how much extra is it for the open bar?" And they said. Oh, nothing. You just have to do the paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Even better. That's wonderful. Now, uh, the other question I wanted to ask you, George, um, actually relates to airlines, which is when people talk about new technology changing journalism, one of the first things I like them to think about is the long-haul jet airliner facilitating coverage of the Vietnam War. Right. Because to me, that was possibly the most significant technological innovation we had in terms of foreign correspondence. Well, I think you're right. I think the two things, that the, the, the advent of jet air travel also came at a time when television news, if you, if you look at when the 707 came into service in 1957 or whatever, uh, that was about the time that the TV news was starting to, to, to build up and take off as a, as a national medium. The, the, the fact that network news divisions were, were, were uh, expanding their newscasts and they were going from uh, a 15-minute-a-night newscast to a half-hour newscast in the early 60s. That happened so after JFK shot, isn't after, it? After the, JFK, the yeah, yeah. I think everybody sort of feels that television news came of age in, in the Kennedy assassination, and that it became an essential part of informing people. And um, then the Vietnam War comes along, and yeah, we relied a whole lot on jet transportation to get people uh, from the states into uh, into places like Vietnam and, and um, all over the world. It, it really facilitated international news coverage. That and, the, and then the advent of uh, satellites uh, in the early 60s to, to transmit the pictures around the world. Yeah. So there was a whole technological shift going on right at that time. And that you, included air, jet air travel. And you were a very young journalist at this time. Uh, I think I'm right in saying you began working for a local station here in California. Right. When did you become a, I hate to use this term, but a kind of trouble spot person who got sent off to cover, you know, major fracas? I, th- I think uh, in 1970 they sent me to Saigon. That was my first assignment with the, the network, and I was there for a year and a half, and then I think you get kind of typecast, as, you know, if you do, <laughs> if you're a work or a spot, and then they say, oh, he, he did very well under those crappy circumstances, let's, let's send him to another awful place. Right. <laughs> and yeah. and yeah. so I went from Vietnam to the uh, revolution in Bangladesh that, that split off Bangladesh from Pakistan. Uh, so and after East and West Pakistan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bangladesh in 71. Was, right, yeah, there was a civil war, and, and East Pakistan split off and became Bangladesh. And I, I was in 
I was in the, the newly minted country of Bangladesh for 32 days, and I finally wrote to my bosses in New York and said, uh, over the telex, we didn't have internet in those days, no email, no text messages, but we did have telex. And I said, I'll do anything to get out of Bangladesh now. And they right. said, go, fine, go back to Vietnam. There's an offensive going on there. <laughs> so I, I, I bounced back to Vietnam, and then eventually... Uh, went back to the States. We opened a bureau in Houston, Texas, and uh, got involved in the coverage of everything from refinery fires to uh, the space program and uh, plenty of side trips to, uh, to trouble spots. Jonestown. Jonestown, the fall of Saigon in 75, uh, the Iran hostage crisis in 79, and then I... It, the Iran hostage crisis came just as they were going to move me from Houston to London. And I was in uh, London for a day and they, n the next two months in Tehran. And uh, at the end of that, uh, they said, uh, you know, we think we really want you in D.C. <laughs> so they canceled my move to London. You had a one, effectively a one-day posting. A one-day posting in London. <laughs> <laughs> Rent a house? Uh, oh, I, we, I'd been over on a house hunting trip earlier that year. I, it was more than one day. I'd actually worked out of the London Bureau for for three or four weeks. Oh, sorry. And while we were <laughs> while we were looking for a house, and I'd actually uh, I'd actually put a deposit down on a house in Hampstead Heath, and <laughs> It'd be worth a bit now. Yeah, it would be. I, I was thinking, uh, that, yeah, back in those days in '79. The house, the selling price of the house was ninety thousand pounds, and how many million pounds would it be worth today? <laughs> so, going through those things chronologically, if we could for a moment, um, or at least some of them, and Cecilia, please jump in about your own experiences of the the, move, the mobility of being a regional, in a sense, a regional correspondent, regional producer. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Still in politics in the United States today, we can never escape the claim made by the right that the so-called mainstream media lost the American war in Vietnam. Right. It's still there implicit in what Fox News Channel says. It's still there implicit in many accusations by the Republican Party. It's still there for some sections of the military, it's still there for some sections of the Vietnamese-American community. There are lots of academic studies that tell us that, in fact, until public opinion changed, the news media didn't change. Right. In other words, it was the opposite of what we're always told, that you guys, you know, because of Cronkite or whoever, fixed the story and pushed people to be against the war. Can I ask your take on all of that? Your experience, your sense of it. Yeah, I think I, I think you got it right. We in, in at the very beginning of the Vietnam War, we in the media were cheerleaders for the war. You know, we're fighting communism. We we don't stop them there. We'll have to fight them in the beaches of Santa Monica. All. <laughs> Thank God you're up on the hill. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen any guys with hats with little red stars on them marching up with AK-47s yet. <laughs> But yeah, we were very much behind the war, and I think I think it uh, kind of came from the journalists who were members of that greatest generation who had remembered World War II, and that you know we were considered part of the war effort, and we mm -hmm. we um, 
we needed to, to rally the country behind the war. And then something called the credibility gap developed. You know, the, the military was saying everything is going hunky-dory, and it wasn't. And then Tet 68 happened. It's the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive in 1968. And, and after the military saying that the, the country is getting more and more secure every day, all hell broke loose. The American embassy in Saigon. Yeah, the em embassy in Saigon was, was attacked by the North Vietnamese and uh, the Viet Cong. And um, that uh, kind of cemented the rift between journalists and, and the, the military, I think. The, the, there were a few journalists who were trying to tell the story straight, who saw that the daily news briefings, which we call the five o'clock follies, were indeed <laughs> figments of the imagination and wishful thinking of the military rather than the facts. There were a few journalists who were calling attention to that before. After Tet 68, uh, the, the crowd of journalists uh, taking a skeptical view of the war grew to a, a mob. And uh, yes, the military, the, the guys who were the young uh, officers in Vietnam uh, started believing that you know the press is against us, that that the press lost the war, and some of those guys became the generals who who, who were in charge in later wars, which is why uh, the military clamped down on the access that the press had to, to battle zones. Colin Powell. Colin Powell and and and, and Schwarz Norman Schwarzkopf. Norman Schwarzkopf. Yeah, those guys decided that um, limiting press access to uh, the battle zones and letting the military control the flow of information completely was the way to go. Yeah, and also my memory is that General William Westmoreland, who'd been in charge of things in the period prior to the Tet Offensive, he, didn't he sue CBS or somebody? He sued it? CBS and Mike Wallace. Because and Mike Wallace, they, who just they, died uh, on the weekend, folks, we honor um, his memory. Because they had done a story about how Westmoreland had been part of a military deception campaign in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Westmoreland felt he was being unfairly defamed by CBS. And he sought to become a politician too, didn't he? Right. Unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully, but, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> that, those wounds have not healed. No. Um, even though the data really don't support the claims. Right. Um, well, I think um, if you look at the, um, the numbers, uh, of, um, the, the U.S. military always kind of understated the numbers of opposition troops, and they thought maybe there were a quarter million um, Viet Cong and, and North Vietnamese troops, when indeed the number was probably twice that many. Mm -hmm. So they understated the strength of the enemy, and right. they understated, they never understood uh, the devotion the Vietnamese communists had to their cause. Um, and, and it was kind of based on uh, the history of the country. Vietnam had been um, under the thumb of various foreign governments over the years. China for a thousand years, Japan during World War II, France, uh, they were a French colony, and then uh, along come the Americans. And, and uh, the, the, most Vietnamese just wanted the damn foreigners off their soil. Right. And they wanted to be able to run their own country, which was the appeal of, uh, of Hanoi's um, 
pitch to, 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 the, uh, to the people in the countryside. So I don't think the war, from our standpoint, I don't think, th think the war was winnable. We were butting into somebody else's civil war, and, and the other side had a, had a better story to tell than we did. They had a better story to tell. Now, um, without wanting to spend too much more time on this, because for people of my generation, Vietnam is really one of Ancient the history. No, 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 no. For my generation, it's part of the axis around which the world turns. Yeah. Uh, actually. Um, when you were doing stories, what was your focus? Was it the U.S. troops and their experiences? Yeah. That, those yeah. were the stories that would, would get on the air. If we, if we had American faces and American voices right. in, in the piece, that, that's what uh, they, they wanted to see back home. We tried to do stories about how the Vietnamese were going to, you know, as I arrived in Vietnam, of course, Nixon had this Vietnamization plan. He was going right. to have the Vietnamese do more of the fighting and dying and, and the American boys do, do a lot less, and he was going to slowly draw down the, American, the, the number of American troops. So um, effectively... It, it, it uh, diminished the value of the story uh, for TV because we'd, we'd go to these battlefronts and we wouldn't find a lot of Americans uh, at the scene of these battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I just did a podcast last week with a friend of mine who's a Latino, Chicano, uh, who fought in the war. And uh, I think it was one of the moments when he realized uh, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm lying down as an infantryman, uh, being shot at next to an African-American working-class guy and a white working-class guy. And then the people who are making all the decisions who went to college and are white males, yeah, they're right. a couple of miles that way. Right. <laughs> and if he, and he edited a great book called Aslan in Vietnam, which is a, a bunch of writings and stories and reminiscences by everybody from nurses and doctors through yeah. to infantrymen. I think it's, it's been true of practically all wars. It's the poor and the minorities who do most of the fighting and dying. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was apparent in Central America because mm -hmm. you would look at um, the contrasts were poor peasant kids, the Sandinista army, poor peasant kids. Mm -hmm. uh, the Sandinista leaders were in Managua. The Contra leaders were in Miami and in Honduras and in Costa Rica. And... Uh, you know, it was it was very sad. That, Far away uh, from what they were. Yeah, but it was very sad that you had you know, poor people killing each other. Yeah, no, it's a tragedy. Well, thinking about today and uh, Afghanistan, obviously we think in those terms, both as far as the civil war is concerned and the role of the United States and Britain, and we think of it in terms of the drug wars in in Mexico uh, that are going on. If we can call them wars, right? Whatever we call it. The horror, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's definitely a story. Now, we've got only about five minutes left, um, so I'm going to have to try to extract from you guys a promise to let me interview you again. <laughs> oh, but, sure. All right, good. Now, oh, you've made an old man happy. <laughs> Cecilia, you've got to say yes, okay? Just imagine I'm Fidel with a goiba. <laughs> I'm going to say yes to what? To being interviewed again. To coming back. Oh, sure, session. sure. Okay, great. If you... If you want to <laughs> no you bet but what I'd, I'd like you both to reflect on for a moment um, it relates to something Cecilia mentioned earlier is what we might call burnout or strategic withdrawal or whatever when you mentioned in your Zocalo piece we were talking about George that you quit being a trouble spot war correspondent because of something one of your daughters said yeah that she... was very moving to right. me so could you reflect a bit on that too and maybe Cecilia would like to say some more about what happens when the adrenaline rush, the excitement, and the sense of importance 
of rushing to a travel spot is overtaken by the coming down or the anxiety or the family issues or whatever it might be? Well, I, I can recall one time when my daughters were terrified. They'd, they'd seen a video of me in, a, in the middle of a firefight in El Salvador, and they were just worried sick that I wasn't okay. And uh, How old were they at that time? Old. Uh, one was um, six years old, and the older one was like ten. Right. And um, you know, they 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 saw Daddy being shot at on on TV, and they didn't realize that, of course, because that story was on the air, it meant I was okay that we had gotten out of there and gotten the, the footage back, and we're we're sending it. I think if you're six years old, that's you don't get that at age six. Clear. Yeah, you don't get that <laughs> right. at age six, and I I just. Um, I began to realize that, that, that they were paying a price for my wanting to be at the scene of, of the big stories. And then Cecilia said something to me along the lines of, you know, when, when the, uh, when the uh, second Iraq war started, she said, if you go to Iraq, I'll kill you first, or something like that. <laughs> am, I, am, I, <laughs> am I exaggerating, Cecilia? <laughs> Yeah, I think you had finally <laughs> come to the point <laughs> of saying, enough, basta, enough, enough already. Yeah, and actually, he would have gone to Iraq because he was in Turkey. This is 2003, we're talking 2003. Yes, yeah. 2003. He went to the first Gulf War, right. but he was waiting to get in with the American troops, except that the Turkish government, thank God, didn't give permission for the American troops to go through Turkey into Iraq. So he was stuck at the border. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I decided not to sneak in under the fence. <laughs> so what's it like in a sense the morning after? I mean, the morning after returning from the Mexico City earthquake to Miami, the morning after deciding... I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm going to do domestic political coverage, or I'm going to do technology reporting, a lot of right. what you've done. I, I, I think it was, to me, a kind of a sense of loss, like sort of grieving for my, my past. But I, I, I think you just reach a point where you say, I'm tempting the law of averages. I'm playing Russian roulette here, and how many more times uh, can I pull the trigger without killing myself? I think that's what it boils down to. That's a calculation and a half. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, you you kind of you calculate you're calculating the the risk benefits ratio. The benefits being I get the big dramatic story of the war. The risks being I get I get shot or killed. And unfortunately for journalists, those risks are getting greater and greater. Yes, just before we started recording, we were talking about the numbers of people killed in the profession each year, and at least in terms of the Committee to Protect Journalists and the information that it promulgates, we're looking at more than one a week, I think, internationally. Right. Yeah, it's been more than 2,200 journalists killed uh, in the line of duty since uh, the D-Day landings in, in Europe in World War II, and the... And, and the number, uh, if you look at the curve, how many were killed in what year, the curve uh, uh, of deaths keeps going up and up. Yeah, so they, there used to be an idea that journalists were, in a sense, 
recorders, they were scribes. Of course, they had national identifications and affiliations, but they were meant to be outside, non-combatants inside a zone of combat. Uh, it just doesn't seem as though that's the case. Now, actually, in, in Central America, it, I mean, some journalists died, but it was accidental. You know, somebody drove over a, a mine, and somebody got caught in crossfire. They were not really targeted. And, and everybody had this big um, tape, tapes on their, on their cars that said TV, even if they were newspapers, but, you know, TV is easy it's to read. It's a universal sign. Yeah, yeah, right, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and you could, um, it wasn't that difficult to contact both sides of the conflicts, uh, but uh, that has changed. Yeah, yeah. In, in Mexico today, you see the, the, the drug cartels targeting journalists because they don't like what, what's being written about them. And sometimes the journalists are in the pocket of a rival cartel. Right, that's and that that's, too. Yeah, that's so. also happening. I mean, uh, yeah. Tim Johnson, who's been in the podcast, has chronicled some of these complicated stories right. with his reports from Mexico. Well, Cecilia, George, thank you both so much for doing this. The food, by the way, was fantastic. I didn't say this while we were recording, but... It was great, and it was Thank wonderful you. to be here with both of you and remembering and learning about some of these extraordinary stories that you've chronicled. You've done, both of you, so much, not only for journalism in this country, but internationally as well. It's been a great privilege. Thank you. Thank you.